welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Hi, everyone. My name is Josh Chisari. I run the North American Consultant Sales Team for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Rob Cook, our Global Head of High Yield. I guess there's rarely been a time when our clients have been more in need of guidance when there have been more questions about the potential outcomes. So, Rob, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, look, I don't know where to start. There's a lot we could talk about, right? COVID-19 and the resultant economic slowdown. Oil in the low 20s when I put together these notes. Today, we got Brent sitting right around 20 bucks with West Texas below zero. Six million new unemployment claims each week. The alphabet soup of facilities have been thrown at the debt market to keep it functional. So maybe that's where I'll let you sort out. Can I ask you to give a high-level recap of what we've seen in the high-yield market and what the primary driving forces have been behind the gyrations? Coming into the year, I guess, what were you most cautious of and what are you thinking about today? Yeah, a lot to unpack there. You know, one of the funny things is we've seen really almost a cycle in the six-week time frame. You know, traditionally, if you think of a high-yield market place when it gets to the end of the cycle and then peaks in terms of spreads and defaults, that is something that's occurring over a 12-month time frame, right? The economy starts to, usually it's growing fairly strongly, but, you know, excesses are building, the Fed's kind of pulling liquidity out of the marketplace and to the point where it constrains growth too much and that we have that typical cycle. This all was the most compressed cycle, certainly, that any of us have seen. So, you know, initially, there was this response this recognition of how impactful shutting off the economy was. And then that proceeded with a grab for liquidity. And so the high-yield marketplace, just like equity saw, really a freefall in prices in that early March period. The high-yield marketplace declined 20% over about a two-week period. So it widened from a low 400 spread to almost 1,100 in the course of really two weeks. You know, this is so interesting. Most of the companies that we've had a chance to talk with over the last six weeks tell us that January and February were one of their best months ever in terms of economic results that they saw. So that's how abrupt the change and dynamic. Then there was almost an equal change as it relates to the significant fiscal and monetary response to that and how that changed the dynamics in the marketplace. So we've rallied back in the high-yield marketplace about 15% from those lows. So we've tightened about 350 basis points. So certainly not recouping what we've sold off. We sit at about 750 in spread today or 8% yield. You know, that's still significantly wider than that low 400s in the fives in terms of yield, but, you know, still a pretty substantial rally from that bottom. I guess in getting at your questions in terms of coming into the year, certainly we didn't foresee this. We were cautiously structured. I think one of the things that I felt very strongly was you weren't being compensated for taking cyclical risk in the marketplace. We were feeling like we were nearing more end of cycle, but you just weren't being paid for taking cyclical risk. So we were more defensive in structure, and that certainly has helped our portfolio positioning. Again, you know, we didn't foresee the events that have taken place, but when you're not compensated for risk, there's no reason to take risk on in portfolios, not how, how we were structured. You know, I guess in terms of things that I'm worried about today, The thing I spend most time thinking about is not the near-term impact. It's significant, and each company we're going through and working through the liquidity burn, understanding 
you know, you could be a company like an auto supplier and you have zero revenues or a food distribution company and you might be down 50% in revenues because a lot of that's going away from home. So you can figure those things out in the short term. The real question is, what are the aftershocks of this? How do we go to a mall going forward? What are our shopping patterns? How do we go to movie theaters and amusement parks and gaming operations? How will the hotel operations be different? So those are the things we're thinking about in terms of portfolios, kind of that second level of impact. And those are the things I worry about for our companies. You certainly worry about getting through bridging the next period of time as it relates to ensuring our investments have the liquidity wherewithal to get through, whether this is another few months of shutoff. And then in some sectors, you know that there'll be really almost a lost season for their business because we might be back to work in a manufacturing plant in the summer, but we certainly don't feel like we're going to be traveling to the degree that we travel, you certainly things that are more luxury or leisure oriented will be certainly impacted to a larger extent. So those are the things that we're really spending a lot of time in terms of portfolio construction process now. So you touched on this a little bit in your response, but obviously there's been a ton of volatility both in the 10-year with the 10-year making new lows and then quickly backing up before settling back in around 60 basis points where it is today. You alluded to what's happened with spreads. I guess the question is, has it been a big enough fundamental change to warrant that kind of volatility, or is it all sentiment and stimulus-driven? And specifically, a week or so ago, I was talking to Bob Michael, and he mentioned that we've had a lot of stimulus in the market, but we're effectively operating from a playbook drafted in 2008 and 2009. And so while we were very quick to market with the stimulus, we don't necessarily know what we're solving for yet. We may be using an old playbook. How does that kind of factor into what we've seen from a volatility perspective? Yeah, good question. Again, listen, I think the reality is it is a big fundamental change. It's a big fundamental change in the abruptness of the economic shock. And, you know, virtually every company is impacted. Even things that you would think would be less impacted to this are being impacted in material ways. And so I think it is a real fundamental change. Now, I think that you bring up an excellent point, which is, okay, we've had a very strong snapback as it relates to really the fiscal and monetary response to that. Is that going to bridge us to better times? And I think that's the question. There is some real powerful bridge that is being provided by this. I think it's opening up capital market liquidity. If I think of March, if I just think sequentially of how we've gone in terms of the high yield marketplace, you know, March, that middle March period, the markets were in a free fall. There's no capital market access, zero market access for companies. And so what the Fed did in providing these facilities is really floored the market and allowed more normal functioning. So what's happening today, and it started in the investment grade market, is companies are able to tap the capital markets to bridge. Because a lot of these programs, if you look at these programs, very few flow directly to the large companies that we're lending to. You know, there's a lot of Main Street kind of small business related funding. There's some direct aid to companies that are larger, but it's really much more the indirect. So the capital markets need to be the source of capital. And just in the last two weeks, in terms of the high yield marketplace, we've seen, and this is even the low investment grade high yield, you know, Six Flags, Sabre, Ford, Energizer, Marriott, Nina Marcus, Cedar Fair, AMC Entertainment, all coming to the marketplace in looking for additional liquidity. So they're tapping $500 million to, in Ford's case, $9 billion of really putting liquidity on the balance sheet 
to bridge themselves to a period of more normalized economic activity. And I think there is a benefit to the stimulus. I think maybe Bob's probably point to that would be, well, it doesn't solve the real economic and demand problem that we have. And that's where I think it gets back to why there's a big push now about getting back to work. And I know this is a very controversial concept out there right now, but if you don't get people working, feeling better about their situation, if you don't solve the demand problem at some point, this liquidity that we're providing is only a temporary solution. And so we need to be bridging ourselves to somewhere. And I think that bridge, but you know, they threw a lot at the economy and you're right. I think it's probably not the exact playbook in hindsight when we'll look back and some of it will probably have been wasted, but it was, I think, a correct response to given how significant the real fundamental change in the economic landscape was. Rob, you just touched on new issuance. Anything that's coming today that you find particularly interesting? And from a spread perspective, is new issue spread north of 700 still? And obviously, how does that compare to pre-COVID? Are we still 300 wide to pre-COVID, even in the new issue market? Yeah, I think what you're seeing is most of the companies that are coming to the marketplace need financing or need some additional liquidity to kind of bolster. So the marketplace is extracting a premium for that. So, and rightfully so, I think, because those are companies, some of the ones that I mentioned, you know, they're all impacted by what's happening today. There's a significant impact to their business. And so the marketplace, I think there are some very unique for investors opportunities. So even a very controversial kind of sector, I would say, is like Nordstrom, which is an investment grade issuer. So it wasn't in the high yield marketplace. They had, you know, investment grade bonds, Clearly, you know, all their stores are shut. People aren't shopping. It's one of those kind of eye of the storm companies. So they came and they actually went to the high yield marketplace because they needed to just bypass traditional investment grade investors and people that are more focused on looking at collateral value and in that more stress situations. They tapped the marketplace. We secured their headquarter building some of their distribution centers and some of their stores to raise some liquidity financing for that company. It came at about a 9% yield. Bond trades at about 105 today. I think that's a really interesting situation in a very tough sector. Six Flags did the same. What we're finding in the new issue market, what they're doing, Josh, is they're also, in many cases, they're priming existing, so getting in front of issuing secured financings that is more senior in the cap track than the lower parts of the cap structure. So many of those companies are using whatever baskets they have. It's a little bit more attractive than buying the securities in the marketplace that exists and you know provides an incentive or an enticement to participate. So I think we are using the new issue market now because the market's gone from you know it's a little bit weaker today and yesterday was starting to weaken, but it's been you know kind of all for sale for really all bid for the last few weeks. So the calendar was a good way to put money to work in the marketplace at a new issue concession. And we were actively doing that in stores. You have to be selective. I think you have to take a, you know, a rifled approach to this and understand how companies are going to migrate through the next six months. And we're assuming, you know, again, it depends on the business, a pretty severe impact to most companies over the next six months, and then probably not a return to normal revenue dynamics in, say, a 2021. And we need to know that this makes sense under that more conservative standard. So we just talked about a couple of names, which everybody loves, of course. But if we back things up and talk about specific sectors, clearly energy and the consumer are going to be negatively impacted. 
But do we actually have a case of baby being thrown out with the bathwater here? I mean, are there opportunities being created by indiscriminate selling? A lot's been made of ETFs and all the money that's flowed into them. As money flows out, obviously, ETFs aren't choosing what they sell. They're selling the market. So is that creating opportunities? Yeah, and it did. Let me kind of walk through the sequence of things. And I think it's going to, again, you know, one of my beliefs is we're not out of the woods and we're going to see market volatility continue. If you think of what happened in the first couple of weeks of the sell-off, the market sold everything off almost at the same ratio. Put energy aside because that had the double whammy of the OPEC collapse on top of the COVID. You know, just put that sector aside for a minute. I can address that. And everything kind of just gapped lower about 20 points. So names like Charter, which is one of the largest cable companies out there, and HCA and Sprint, really good quality, very defensive sectors, best-in-class operators and what they did, went down about the same as the whole marketplace. So, you know, in that early March period into that mid-March, the baby was thrown out with a bathwater. You could buy defensive companies down 20 points with great franchise value, 100% feeling good about, you know, the level of asset value beneath you. Now, that part of the market's rallied substantially back. So the market quickly, and that was very ETF-driven, Josh. So exactly what you're saying, there were just sellers in the marketplace. As I mentioned earlier, people just needed, wanted cash. And so that push, so that was the easy trade at first. And the first thing that we did is we bought all those more defensive names. We added those to portfolios, but that's kind of played out. That's already bounced back. And I think in the short term, you know, you have to be more discerning. Now, again, if we see that technical flow, so right now you do the opposite. The ETFs have been, we had one of the largest week of inflows to the ETF ever last week, and the market's been nothing but bid. We've been selling into that. We think that that makes sense on some situations. You know, a name like Hilton Hotels, I'll give you some specific examples. This is a good example of kind of what happened. So Hilton Hotel has a five-year bond, it's high yield, very good company, significant equity value beneath the debt. Double B company was trading at 102 at the start of all this. Went down 20 points, went down to 82 over the course of two weeks. That's a name that we thought, okay, that's a survivor, good asset value. We bought some of that paper as it went down. It's rallied to 98 today. Now, we're in that seller of that name into some of the strength because as much as I like that company, it's franchise, and it's going to be here a year, two, and three years from now, it's going to have some substantial, obviously, impact in the short term. And I think a little bit you know, more in the intermediate term in terms of just how travel demand is. So should it be marginally lower than where it was at the start of this? It just feels to me that that's too much technical buying back up. And so you're supposed to sell into that. And we've done that with some names within the gaming and lodging and leisure space where we've just felt that the technicals have overwhelmed the fundamentals that worked on the way down and it's worked on this initial way back on some names. So I think you have to sift through that. So I do think active management through this process in general is going to hopefully prove its mettle and that we'll see that. And I think we're going to see bouts of volatility where you're going to continue to take advantage of the technicals. You know, we were running elevated cash positions going into this just because we didn't see a lot of value in the marketplace. So we were running a typical institutional account closer to between 5 and 7% cash, which is pretty high for an institutional account. It's about a max cash. We spent into that. We got down to probably 2% cash in most accounts. We're trying to get to about 5% 
thinking that we'll see a little bit more volatility. And one of the things that is happening in this market as things dislocate, it's very challenging to do buy this, sell this trade. You have to kind of do things in advance and do one side of the trade first and then the other side because bid offers have widened out. So, you know, we want to raise some cash and as volatility picks up, we'll be able to kind of pick up opportunities that we think are cheaping up for technical reasons versus fundamental reasons. So, of course, cheapening up implies a wider spread. Spread's supposed to protect you against the risk of default. Where do you see defaults headed? I guess, is there two stages? Is there kind of a near-term default as some of these companies don't have operating cash to continue, but then at the depth of things, how big do you think we see the defaults get? Yeah, we're already seeing a pickup in defaults here in April. There's a number of names. Obviously, the one sector we haven't talked too much about that's just, you made a joke that, you know, they were giving away oil yesterday in terms of that, is the energy space is under a tremendous amount of fundamental pressure, and we don't see that abating anytime soon. And so that's going to create a level of defaults. You know, $20 work, certainly negative oil prices don't work. But in all reality, even if you look out the curve, it's a very challenging underlying environment for the energy space. And so defaults are going to rise throughout the course of the year in that space. And then I think if you think about it, the companies that are going to default are really the companies that were very fully levered and have somewhat cyclical or impacted by what's happening as sectors. And so we're going to see a general rise in defaults. I think they're going to get, you know, I was just path dependent. So we don't know, you know, the length of the stay-at-home orders. We don't know how quick they rebound. So I think it's a, I'd like to give you a ban. I think it's going to be a seven to 10% ban this cycle. And at the low end, that would be, you know, we get a little bit more confidence. We're able to get back to work sooner. There's a quicker rebound in economic activity. The higher end will probably be one where, you know, maybe we're slower. There's just more lasting economic impact. People have been out of work. Wealth's been you know, impacted, I think, you know, the general population depleted savings through this and that knock-on effect hurts more companies as we go forward. So it's somewhere in that range, which is, you know, what you typically would see in a cycle, getting up to about 10%. Now, pre this, I would have told you, I felt very strongly that the marketplace were going to have a lower default rate than historically. And the reason I said that is the quality of the high yield issuer today is substantially better than any time in history. If you look at the size of the company, the average rating, about 70% of our public companies right now. So there's been a real upgrading of the quality of company. The offset has been how swift and severe this turndown has been. And then the energy component, the real depression that's occurring in the energy space right now. Well, is this where it gets interesting? I mean, because you're theoretically going to have a huge deluge of names come into your index as triple Bs, which had swelled in the investment-grade market, are downgraded. So are you finding opportunities in fallen angels? Are you being paid to take risk in the lower tiers at high yield? Yeah, well, a couple of questions there. You know, yes, I think, listen, there's two reasons why something comes down, right? You know, one is, are they good businesses, put on some leverage, and then they have some sort of cyclical impacts to them. And you can take advantage of that. Then there's the secular pressured businesses, think like maybe a Macy's. You know, okay, so Macy's just got downgraded. And Macy's, I would argue, is in a secular decline. It's got a real challenge to it. It might be some value at some point in the securities of Macy's, but you know, you so you're you have to weigh not just the short term impacts, but where the longer term dynamics associated with those companies. So I think there's always opportunity. One of the things I will tell you is very interesting. People were really worried about the downgrades into high yield and how that would impact the marketplace. So we saw about hundred and forty billion already downgraded. 
in most of those names, all the negative price performance occurred in the investment grade marketplace. So if you look at Oxy and Ford Motor Credit and Kraft Heinz, many of these names that have just recently come down, all the value destruction occurred while they were investment grade and most are up substantially since they've actually entered the index, which is interesting. It's also somewhat coincided with a better environment over the last month. So we see opportunities. We see opportunity in some of these stressed investment grade names in the marketplace. As an example, Hyatt Hotels is an investment grade name. They're issuing bonds in the marketplace today in the 5 to 6% range. That's about a 500 spread. It's not an investment grade typical credit risk. In terms of that spread, you know, the investment grade market's trading at about a 200 spread today. So those are situations that, you know, in the high yield marketplace, we're maybe more comfortable coming in, participating. We played the Marriott deal. I mentioned the Neiman Marcus deal was investment grade. So I think there's going to be select opportunities all around that low triple B to high double B. There's going to be some good assets, good collection of businesses that you're going to want to lend to. And then there's going to be some that we would say that are, say, energy related that are really likely to be further pressured over the course of the next 6 to 12 to 18 months and might find themselves you know, in the single B category 12 months from now from just investment grade not too long ago. All right. Well, with that, then, we hope today's call was helpful as you think through what you're doing in your portfolios. Thanks to the audience. Thanks to you, Rob. And a special thank, thank you. you to Jess, Rosie, and Kelly for making the magic happen behind the scenes. Everybody stay safe. We'll talk again soon. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. 
Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients' use only, by local JP, Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario. Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.